Well, turning your Bibles once again to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. And this morning we find ourselves in a passage of Scripture which records for us our Lord's second response to the second series of complaints given by the prophet Habakkuk as he represents the people of God. And so we saw last week that Habakkuk gives his complaint to God and he says in chapter 2 and verse 1 that he will take his place on the watchtower or the watchpost and he will look to see the answer that the Lord should give to him. And we find that answer beginning in verse 2 of Habakkuk 2. Please follow along. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest, His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The words that we just read are a record, as I said, of God's response to the prophet Habakkuk in his second series of complaints to the Lord. He began by complaining and questioning God in chapter 1 because the unrighteous of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel to which he was a prophet for, 
was oppressing the righteous. And he cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord, how long will this take place? God responds that He will not remain in silence for long because He sees the sins of the unrighteous of Judah, the sins of His own people, and therefore He will send the wicked Babylonians to invade Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and to take captive all the people back to Babylon. This, of course, began to raise more questions within Habakkuk's heart and within his mind. And he begins to wonder why God, if he hears the cry and the complaints of the prophet and the people, and God sees the wickedness of his people, why is he choosing to send the Babylonians to destroy his people? Why not send a national revival? And so this raises more questions, and Habakkuk begins to to question God again. And he is convinced of God's righteousness and of His purity and of His sovereignty so that we see in chapter 1 and verse 12 as he makes this complaint, he he concludes and says, we shall not die. In other words, he understood there was a righteous remnant that God would preserve in the country of Judah. And yet he still wonders why as he comes to the end of his second complaints as we saw last week, why God would choose a more wicked people than Judah the Babylonians, to invade his own people. He is a perplexed prophet, but we saw last week that in faith he was going to wait on the watchtower. He was going to look out for a word from God to give to the people of God. He would wait there in faith. He would wait there in faith in a God he could not see. But he would hear a word from this God. And he knew that this word would provide hope for the people of God. And thus we just read the response of God in verses 2 through 20 of Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, in these verses, as I read them to you, they are a mouthful to read. There is much information in them. But to take this down to its summarized form, God is essentially doing just a few things. First of all, God is telling Habakkuk here that he will judge the Babylonians for invading Judah. Now, He will judge them in His time. And the the children of Israel, those of the southern kingdom of Judah, are going to have to wait patiently. But in due time, God will judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. God does not give a wink to evil. God sees all the evil in the world. And He reveals that to Habakkuk and to the people of God. Secondly, God tells Habakkuk the prophet to make sure he writes down this vision for the people of God to read. No doubt, he tells him to write it down, to preserve it as inspired revelation, so that the people of God can return to the Word of God and remind themselves of what God has promised to do in judgment to the wicked Babylonians. And then the third thing that God does is He lays out for Habakkuk and the people of God a series of five woes or judgments, future pronouncements of doom for the Babylonians. It is a reminder to us that God sees every single one of the actions of us this morning. He knows our hearts. He knows the wickedness that lies within every leader of the world who is wicked. He knows the wickedness of every person who has ever lived. And He is chronicling all of that. And we see in this passage the detail by which God points out the sin of the wickedness of Babylon. And that's where I think this passage is instructive for us this morning. Even this past week we saw in the news 
And we heard of a rogue nation, North Korea, making reckless threats about attacking our own country. And we have to ask ourselves the question, and we have to, I think, ultimately ask God the question, God, what is it that you are about to do? God, what are your sovereign purposes in allowing a wicked nation like North Korea to arise? And so this passage before us is very applicable. It reminds us that no nation is sovereign, only God is sovereign. And God will have the final word. God alone stands in judgment against all nations. And we need to be reminded this morning that our kingdom is not of this world. We live by faith in another kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Secondly, this passage is instructive for us because we need God's inspired written word. God has chosen, as we are reminded here, to to tell Habakkuk to write down this vision. And we have in our hands this morning the holy, inspired, authoritative Word of God that we must constantly go back to to confirm and to strengthen our faith. It is God's Word, the inspired Word of God, that reminds us that we have a righteous God. It is the inspired Word of God that reminds us the righteous way to live by faith in this world. And third... We learn from this passage that more than being against wicked nations, as I mentioned earlier, God is against all sin. God is not just against the sin of wicked nations and wicked tyrants. God is against all sin. God is against your sin. God is against my sin. He's against the sin of the world. He's against the sin of the church. And we must never view sin or wickedness lightly or we will be guilty of viewing God lightly. And the passage this morning reminds us to take God and His judgment very seriously. Now the passage, I believe, opens up to us in two simple summary points. First we see in verses 2-5 through what I want to call the Lord's response to Israel's complaint. And then secondly, verses 6-20, through the Lord's revenge on Israel's conquerors. First, the Lord's response to Israel's complaint, verses 2-5. through And second, the Lord's revenge on Israel's conquerors, verses 6-20. through So notice with me, first of all, point number one, the Lord's response to Israel's complaint in verses 2-5. through And here God responds to Habakkuk, and thus to Israel, since Habakkuk is representing Israel, and his response involves specific instructions to write down God's judgment of the wicked Babylonians. This message, as verse 2 says, should be written on tablets. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Tablets that would have been very similar to the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on in the book of Exodus. This vision of judgment was to be recorded to preserve it for all time. And it was to be written in very big letters so that the one who may run by it would be able to read it. It's sort of like a big billboard on the interstate. You're driving by at 70 miles an hour, but you see the big letters and you're able to read it. That's the message God is giving Habakkuk and the people of God. It's a serious message, a message he doesn't want them to miss. And there are a couple of reasons why he has it written down. Number one, he wants to confirm the certainty of his inspired word written down by one of his prophets. And second, this message of judgment 
was to be preserved not just for Israel, but for us today. That is why God told Habakkuk to write it down. I believe that the judgments that are described against the wicked Babylonians are universal principles that apply not only to God's judgment of Babylon, but also on all the evil peoples, nations, and individuals in the world of all time. God wants it written in big letters. So we read in verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow, but wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We write down dates and meetings when they are made in advance so we don't forget about them. I found myself doing this last week. I have an engagement tomorrow, and so I wrote it down in my calendar so I would not forget it. This vision of judgment is to be written down so God's people of all time will not forget it. And also, when it's written down, it will serve to strengthen our faith when it seems as if God's promises are slack. When it seems as if it is taking forever for God's promises and purposes to be fulfilled. We read in verse 3, we need to wait for it. God will not lie because God cannot lie. And the fulfillment of the vision may take a while. It will require waiting. But what God decrees will occur exactly when God has decreed it, though from a human vantage point, God's promises often seem delayed. If you notice in the middle of verse 3, there's that important phrase, God says, it hastens to the end. And the end in the context, applies to the end of the Babylonian empire. God's promises will hasten to their end. And so we read in history that about the year 539 B.C., King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire defeated Babylon and their kingdom came to an end. But I want you to understand that that phrase, hastens to the end, actually applies not just to the end of the Babylonian empire, but the end of all wickedness and evil for all time, pointing forward to the end of the world. I know this because of what the book of Hebrews says. If you turn with me in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 10, you will see this passage and verse 4 as well, which we've not read yet, being quoted by the author of Hebrews. Pick up with me in Hebrews 10 and verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Another way of saying that is don't throw away your faith, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's speaking about the coming of Christ. But he's quoting Habakkuk 2. And in verse 38, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This passage in Habakkuk has application for the end of the world, that it's calling all of God's people in faith to trust and to look for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who will do away with all evil. And that takes us really to verse 4, which is the central verse of this entire book. Notice it with me in your Bibles. Habakkuk 2.4, God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, referring to the Babylonians. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live 
by faith. A very famous verse, of course, that is quoted in the New Testament on more than one occasion. And what God is providing here for Habakkuk and the people of Israel is a contrast, specifically a contrast between the Babylonians who are puffed up in their pride and they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They don't have an upright soul. In contrast to the righteous remnant to whom Habakkuk belongs and others in the country of Judah who are righteous. And they live by faith. That's the specific application. But of course, because it is repeated in the New Testament, it applies to this worldwide, universal distinction. There are only two types of people in the world today. And there have only ever been two types of people in the world. The unrighteous and the righteous. The faithless and the faithful. Those who don't have faith in God. Those who do have faith in God. Those who are proud in their arrogance. And they rebel against God. And those who are humbled under the weight of God's Word. And so we learn here that God's eternal purpose and promises concerning salvation and concerning judgment cannot be thwarted. What God is calling Habakkuk the prophet to He's calling the people of Israel to, and He's calling us to this morning. And it's a reminder that the righteous will live by faith. There are many things that are happening in the world and that have happened in the world. But God is not slack in His promises. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact, Peter says, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be, Isaiah says, that goes forth from my mouth, speaking on behalf of God. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is reminding His people that there are only two types of people, the puffed up, who have no faith in God, and then the humble, the righteous, who live by faith. When he says here in verse 4, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. It's referring to the Babylonians who represent all the wicked of all time. They have a puffed up soul, which means they're proud in who they are and who they've become. Proud in their intellect, proud in their physical strength, their wealth, their power, their fame, their fortune, their status. The proud of the world are marked by a confidence that is misplaced in themselves and not in God. And what God is implying here is those sort of unrighteous people will die, but the righteous shall live by faith. The one whose faith in God has justified him before God will also live in faithfulness to God. And that really is the point of this verse. You could translate the end of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Now listen to me closely. There is justification by faith and there is sanctification by faith. These are distinct yet not separate realities or concepts. In other words, we are justified by faith alone and declared righteous. A faith, by the way, that is given to us by God. But it is also true that we are sanctified by our faith. All of those who have faith until the end will be saved. Both are true. They don't contradict one another. If you have justifying faith, you will have sanctifying faithfulness to God. 
And that is why the Apostle Paul can quote Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous shall live by faith. He quotes it in Romans 1.17, as well as Galatians 3.11, to argue that the believer is justified by faith alone in God. That is the great cardinal doctrine of the Reformation. And it is also true that it is quoted in Hebrews 10.38, which says, my righteous, I read it earlier, my righteous one shall live by his faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What does that mean? It means that true believers, those truly possessing faith in God, don't apostatize. They persevere in their faith until the end, throughout their life of sanctification, until they reach their glorification. And I believe the emphasis here in Habakkuk 2.4 is an emphasis that is in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, and that is those who truly have faith in God are marked by faithfulness until the end. They are able to withstand the evil and the wickedness and the questions and the perplexities of life because they have faith in a God they cannot see. And they obey the law of this God that they cannot see. They are marked by righteous living. They live righteously before God. And they deal deal rightly with people. The unrighteous live unrighteously before God. And they deal wrongly with people. Notice verse 5, referring back to the Babylonians. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own all peoples. God is saying the Babylonians are like drunkards, never satisfied, whose quest for imperial expansion was greedy. Notice the language here. He likens Babylon to Sheol or to the grave, like death that never has enough. If you want to go into a business that always has supply and demand, then go into the funeral business. Death never takes a vacation. Sheol, the grave, constantly swallows up people, even at this very moment. Death is swallowing people up into the grave. Death never takes a vacation. And God is saying that Babylon is like death. He has gathered for Himself, as verse 5 says, all nations. And we saw last week, He's like a fisherman. In chapter 1 and verse 15, He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with His net. He gathers them in His dragnet. So He rejoices and He is glad. The Babylonians are the epitome of wickedness and prideful rebellion, and faithful, faithlessness against God in contrast to the righteous who live by their faith. I hope you understand this morning that God will punish all the unrighteous. And I hope you also understand that it is only the righteous who will live by their faith. Faith is the critical element in every Christian's life. What is faith? Well, faith is taking God's Word at face value and living according to it. Faith is simply obeying God's Word, listening to God's Word. Why? For no other reason than for the fact that God has spoken it. And I read earlier the heroes of the faith and the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 who believed God's Word because of one simple truth. They believed God's Word because God spoke that Word. Now, why did Abraham sacrifice his son? Or why was he willing to sacrifice his son? Simple answer, Sunday school answer. Because God told him to. 
And by faith, he obeyed and was willing to go through that. By faith, Abraham and all others trust in an invisible God. And we read about the early Christians who lived this way. By faith, they trusted in a God they could not see, even though they could see the sword that was getting ready to chop off their heads. By faith, they trusted in a God they could not see, though they could see the stones that were being hurled at them. By faith, they trusted in a God that was invisible, though they could see the whip that was getting ready to flog them. By faith, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab did not perish with the disobedient because she welcomed the spies. And beloved, the question this morning rising from this text is simply this, are you willing to take God's Word at face value and live according to it? Or do you find your feet in an uncertain world beginning to slip by the perplexities and the complexities and the misunderstandings because things seem to be out of control. Listen, God is faithful to His promises. He is Lord over history. There is coming a day in which He will grant to you all of the promises that find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is coming a day in which He will judge all wickedness, all evil, You may wonder why God allows so much evil. You may wonder why He allows so much wickedness. Understand, this is the message God is giving Habakkuk. All of this is temporary. This world is fading away. And like Habakkuk, we are living in between the promises of God. Our hope is not in this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We pray for a kingdom that is yet to come because we believe that it will come. And even when God chastens us, even when we can't understand His ways, we must trust Him by faith. He's full of righteousness and holiness. He is sovereign and He is coming back to judge all wickedness and He will be victorious. Do you accept this by faith? The Bible says the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Now normally our faith is strengthened when we are reminded of the salvation promises of God, right? So last week we partook of the Lord's Supper because those are emblems. Both the bread and the cup are emblems of the salvation promises of God. And we are reminded that as we eat of that bread and drink of that cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes to establish and consummate His kingdom. But I want you to understand something this morning. Scripture throws us a curveball in our present text. Because while it is true on the one hand that God will hold forth for us His salvation promises as a means to confirm our faith and to strengthen our faith so that as righteous people we live by faith, it's also true on the other hand that He holds forth His promises of judgment to strengthen our faith to encourage our faith, to remind us that He is a God of salvation, but He is also a God of damnation. He is a God of heaven, but He is also a God of hell. He is a God of salvation, but He is also a God of judgment. And my dear friends, what sustains our faith in a world that seems to have gone to pot is not only the reality that we will be saved from the hell we live in now, but also that God's going to come back and judge all evil and wickedness and His justice will have the final word. 
And all righteous people ought to be consumed with that sort of righteous anger and indignation against the wicked of the world. And so the Lord's response to Israel's complaint in verses 2-5 through now moves to the second point, to the Lord's revenge on Israel's conquerors. Verses 6-20. through The Lord's response to Israel's complaint gives way to the Lord's revenge on Israel's conquerors. And in these verses, verses 6-20, through God tells the prophet Habakkuk that there are five woes or pronouncements of judgment on the wicked. Now listen, the reason this is important for us to hear this morning is because Babylon is a picture that symbolizes all the wicked of all time. And in these five woes are found, we could say, five categories of sin that God will judge. Whether it's wicked rulers and nations, whether it's the famous wicked or the powerful wicked, whether it's the wicked man or woman that lives next to you, your neighbor or your family member or your friend, God sees all wickedness and it will be punished and justice will reign by the end of the world. And it's a reminder to us that we are to view sin just as God does. We are to live righteously. We are to buck against the sins that God condemns here. And we are to pray for God's fire and fury to rain down on all of those who practice wickedness, who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the balance of Scripture. You cannot have a holy God without having a God of justice. You cannot have a God of love without also having a God of judgment and condemnation and damnation. And so, God is providing to Habakkuk these five woes as a means to encourage him. Listen, God is saying to Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Babylonians to invade my people and judge my people, but then I'm going to turn around and judge the wicked Babylonians. Now, before we go through these woes, I want to point out to you that these five woe oracles are called a taunt song. It's structured that way. If you notice the beginning of verse 6, God says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Speaking about against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for him. And say, Woe to him. The word woe is the Hebrew word hoy. It can mean different things, but has the basic meaning of judgment. It's an announcement of doom by the prophets. And this woe is climaxed in verse 20 with a call to submit to the God of history who sovereignly rules from His heavenly temple. Nothing escapes His notice. God knows all. God sees all. And God will judge all with holiness and righteousness. And this series of woes are meant not only for the nation of Judah and the righteous remnant, but they are meant for us today. The central message is simply this. Keep the faith for the arrogant and proud, wicked, unrighteous, faithless will fall under God's judgment, but the righteous will live by faith. And the question this morning is, do you have enough faith to believe in a God you cannot see? to fulfill the promises that have yet to be fulfilled, not only in His salvation and the promise of heaven for all of His people, but also in the promise of judgment and condemnation. These two messages run throughout all of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Now, I want to go through each one of these woes, and it won't take long to go through each one of them because the language that is used here is pretty general to get to a pretty quick point. But there are five woes, each containing three verses or three parts, and you could really divide each one of these woes up into these three parts. First, an announcement of the woe. Second, an apocalypse of the woe. And third, an argument of the woe. An announcement of the woe an apocalypse of the woe, an argument of the woe. And I'll point these three out as we go through them. And I might want to define for you the word apocalypse, which is defined as this. An apocalypse is a prophetic revelation, especially concerning a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. And if we believe in God, and if we believe that He is the God of history, we believe that He is an apocalyptic God. He will have the final word of woe. So as we work through these, you need to remind yourself that this is not just speaking about Babylon. This is speaking about all the wicked, all the evil of all time. And it is a condemnation, not only of the unbelievers of the world, but it is a reminder to us that God is against the evil that resides even within our hearts this morning. Do we trust in God by faith to obey His law, even when it seems as if it doesn't profit us much in this world. The righteous shall live by faith. Now notice with me the first woe. It's found in verses 6-8. through It is a woe to the extortioners of Babylon. Notice with me what we might call the announcement of the woe. Verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against Him with scoffing and riddles for Him and say woe to Him who heaps up what is not His own for how long and loads Himself with pledges? That's extortion. Now notice the apocalypse of the woe. Verse 7, Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. And then notice the argument of the woe, or the reason for the woe. Verse 8, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. I should say that the nations who have been taken advantage of, like fish by the Babylonians, are now taunting the Babylonians in their day of judgment. And this is a woe in which they are crying out against the Babylonians because of their exploitation of other nations for personal gain. So that all of the nations who have been plundered by the Babylonians' imperial ambitions will speak out against her. They will mock Babylon. They will taunt her. Babylon took wealth from other nations that did not belong to them, and so now these nations are coming to collect what is rightfully theirs. You notice the word pledges in verse 6. That is likely a reference to heavy taxes exacted on the nations that were conquered. And verse 7 speaks about the debtors or the creditors. The nations that were victims of the Babylonians are like creditors whose day of payback has come so that Babylon, the plunderer, will become Babylon, the plunderer. And just as Babylon was marked with violence, so too God will use a violent method to exact violence in return on behalf of these nations so that verse 8 speaks about the blood of man and of violence. What do we learn from this first woe? Well, we learn simply this, that violence results in more violence. Isn't it true that one war ends and another begins often as a result of the long-term effect of the last war. 
National politics based on sheer power without a genuine desire for justice is the sort of violence that God takes notice of. A government that is based sheerly on power and oppression and violence, God sees that nation. And the principle of Galatians 6-7 does not merely apply to individuals, it applies to nations. That which a nation sows, she will also reap. It is a reminder to us of Romans 13 that the purpose of government as designed by God is to punish evildoers and tyrants and those who oppress others with violence and make threats. It is to punish them and it is to protect those who do good. And a land and a government that loses all sense of justice will turn into a government that is about power and oppression and bloodshed. And God marks that nation. And He will return back to that nation judgment through bloodshed. That nation will reap what they sow. That's the first woe. But notice with me the second woe in verses 9-11. through This is a woe to the greedy and to the arrogant. Notice with me verse 9, the announcement of the woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And then the apocalypse of the woe. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And now the argument or the reason for the woe. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. The second woe concerns the building of fortunes and power structures unjustly. It's the abusing of others to create your own sense of security. It's the the old way of climbing over and on top of others for your own success. And that's what Babylon did. Verse 9 mentions a nest that is built up high. That's what eagles do. They build their their nest up high because it's seemingly invincible. It's It's a place of security where, like a lord, they can reign over all and see over all. And God says that Babylon has built their fortunes on the backs of others. They are an empire that is trusted in their own security, their own invincibility. But as these verses say, they have a house that is going to crumble. It is a house that they thought was a house of security, but verse 10 says it's a house of shame. And it's going to crumble. They were so guilty of exploiting others out of greed that the stones of the walls of their structures began to cry out against them. And the beams and the fancy woodwork called out to accuse them. It's a reminder this morning that if we live this life for wealth, we will be most disappointed It reminds us of the rich fool who thought greedily building barns to to house his wealth was smart, but he didn't consider that his very riches would call out to him that very night. That his physical and material empire meant nothing in terms of God's kingdom. And God says it's as if these inanimate stones of your structures will cry out against you. It's a sort of an echo of what God said to Cain that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Here he says, an inanimate object, stones and woodwork, are going to cry out. It's like the expression, if these walls could talk, what would they say? Well, these walls did talk. And they condemned the Babylonians. And you say, well, where's the application? Well, the application is in the warning that we are not to build personal wealth by unjust gain. 
that to do so does not go unnoticed by the God of heaven. He has a way of shaming those whose success is driven by tactics of exploitation. And even as I prepared this sermon, I thought of our own church and I thought of so many of you who own your own businesses. And I thought of so many of you who are having trials and tribulations at your work. You work too hard and you don't get paid enough. I've been there. I know how it feels. And the message this morning from Habakkuk is that the righteous shall live by faith. Those who have employees and those who have customers are not to exploit them, but by faith they are to do the right thing, trusting that God will provide. And those who work for, a, for an evil person and someone who is domineering and oppressive must, if they're righteous, live by faith. That when they're obedient, when they submit, God will reward that. But what God will not reward, and indeed what God will punish, is any sort of exploitation of other people, climbing on their backs, taking advantage of them for your own personal success. And so God warns Babylon of this. That takes us now to the third woe, which is found in verses 12 through 14. This is a woe to those who build on bloodshed. It's sort of a continuation of the last woe. Notice in verse 12, the announcement of the woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And the apocalypse of the woe, verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And here's the argument or the reason for the woe. Verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The third woe, as I said, is basically a continuation of the second woe. It speaks of the wickedness of using cruelty and violence to to build an empire. And what God is saying here to Habakkuk is that such a kingdom built in such a fashion will not last. As the verses say here, that just as a, a fire burns anything you put into it, so are the labors of those nations and kingdoms that build their nations, their nation off of bloodshed. And how true is it? How many nations have risen to world domination only to become an afterthought in the history books? And then we have a reminder that God's kingdom and only God's kingdom is everlasting. Verse 14, a precious verse, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Our world is and always has been filled with wicked regimes, tyrants, oppressors, injustice, but someday the true King will come. A new dawn of of light will shine across the globe of this world. The King will come. His kingdom will be established and consummated. And at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess His name. His glory will fill this earth. How futile it is for evil nations to build their empires off cruelty and violence. And what does it teach us today as individual Christians? It teaches us simply this, beloved. Our faith should ultimately not be in any government or any military. It is to be in God. And the righteous will live by this sort of faith that only God's kingdom is eternal. That God's kingdom will fill the earth with His glory. That His kingdom is eternal. His decrees are just. His laws are always right. And so ultimately, we are obedient and subservient to the God of heaven and earth. And our trust is in Him. And that takes us now to the fourth woe, 
which is found in verses 15 through 17. This is a woe to the drunk and sexually immoral. Notice the announcement of the woe in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, and you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And now the apocalypse of the woe, you will have your fill, verse 16, of shame. Instead of glory, drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand. It will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. In verse 17, the argument or the reason for the woe, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is a woe concerning judgment on immorality. And throughout history, I don't need to point out to you that drunkenness and debauchery have gone together. That oftentimes inducing others to intoxication is an age-old tactic to corrupt morals. And God is comparing Babylon to that sort of method of empirical expansion. She has made her victims easy victims. She's preyed on them. She has shamed them. And now, in an act of poetic justice, the cup that led to shame and sometimes death with which the Babylonians seduced others will be forced upon them to drink. And it will be a holy cup, not of wine, but of God's wrath. And of course, this prediction came true. We read about it in Daniel chapter 5, the famous incident of Belshazzar's feast as he has this immoral feast, uh, the Medo-Persians are outside the city walls of Babylon and Belshazzar is arrogantly entertaining a drunken orgy and blaspheming the God of Israel. And what happened? That very night, Belshazzar was killed. The city fell. The Babylonian Empire came to an end. They drank the cup of God's wrath even as they drank their wine and committed all forms of immorality. And what do we learn from this woe? We learn this simple fact, beloved. All forms of immorality that violate God's holy law will be judged. Do not be deceived by governments and cultures and societies that try to redefine what sin is and what sin is not. God's law has not changed. And the way God responds to those who violate His law has not changed. He will come back and He will judge. The righteous are to live by faith. We are to have as our prayer Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep Your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted, but give me life, O Lord, according to Your Word. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget Your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from Your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform Your statutes forever to the end. That is the cry of the righteous. That is the cry of the one who has faith. That is the cry of even the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 who trusted in a God they could not see. They grabbed onto promises they could not see. They embraced God's law and they lived separate from everyone else in the world. Listen, God is not slack in His promises. It's just like a child who thinks he's getting away with something 
because his parents' back is turned? And does he not know, as my mother used to say, she has eyes in the back of her head. God has eyes in the back of his head. And he sees every form of violation of his holy law that is committed by every transgressor. And it would be easy this morning to condemn the immoral of the world, the immoral of our country, and yet God's Word is speaking to us. And it's saying, Christian, the righteous live by faith. Do you trust that it's worth it to obey God's law and to live on the righteous path even though you are being tempted and you are being pressured, young person, to sin against God? to go with the crowd, to do what everyone else is doing? Has all faith disappeared in your mind and in your heart and in your soul? Listen, God will judge all wickedness. And that ought to confirm your faith in God. And it ought to keep you on the narrow path. Anyone who says God's law is something God's people should not hear is giving to you a message from Satan. God's people must hear God's law. The promise of His judgment is a means to keep us on the righteous path. He is a holy God, and He must be feared. And it causes us to take, as it were, a flashlight and to look into the secret, dark recesses of our own hearts and souls and to confess our sins before this holy God. Well, that takes us to the fifth and final woe in verses 18 through 20. This is a woe to idolaters. Notice the announcement of the woe, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. They can't talk. And here's the apocalypse, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. And here is the argument or the reason for the woe, because the Lord is in His holy temple. Therefore, let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now, this fifth woe describes God's judgment against Babylon's idolatry. The worship of false gods is both foolish and futile. Why? Because this passage reminds us that idols are powerless Idols are lifeless. Idols are speechless. And those who pridefully trust in a dead God will become dead themselves. They will enter an eternal death. There is only one true God. There is only one true temple, and it's in heaven. And there is only one true Lord. And He sits in heaven. And He calls all idols to silence. And all of the religious chants and religious prayers of all idolaters throughout all time someday will be silenced before the one true and living God. And the mockery that idolaters are engaged in even this morning will be reversed and God will mock those idolaters. He will stop their mouths just as Elijah mocked the false gods on Mount Carmel. 4 verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This indeed is an apt conclusion to all of the woes. And it is a reminder to the prophet and to the people. You may question God. You may complain against God. You may doubt Him because it seems as if the promises of His Word are slow coming But at the end of the day, all of His true children retreat to the watchtower 
and they sit in silence before the Lord of the temple. The holy God is enthroned in His temple. And this morning, He is making wise decisions for your life. He is making just decisions for this world. He is pure and undefiled. He is holy and He is sovereign. And the Lord of heaven and earth is not like a deaf, dumb, mute, powerless idol. He's present in His temple. And anytime you fear that He has abandoned you, don't mistake that for abandonment. Don't mistake silence for abandonment. For He will fulfill all of His promises at His appointed time. And that's why He calls us this morning to walk by faith and not by sight. That is the essence of the Christian life. To walk by faith. Now what do we learn from all of this? A few little principles. Let me give these to you. Number one, life is filled with mysteries. But understand this morning, God is a loving God, and we must choose to believe that. That is, you don't have all of the answers as you sit there this morning. But you must trust that God does. The righteous shall live by faith. Do you believe that He still loves you? Even when He allows and ordains suffering in your life. We must choose to believe that because the righteous shall live by faith. Secondly, God is fully aware of the wickedness surrounding us and He will get the final word. He will get the final word over every wicked ruler and every wicked nation and every wicked person that afflicts you and persecutes you for your faith. Number three, God sometimes uses unlikely circumstances to accomplish His purposes. And we have seen this throughout history. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, an unlikely way to test the obedience of Abraham. And God is up to a number of things this morning in our lives. He oftentimes does unlikely things to accomplish his purposes. Number four, faith in God is the key to living the Christian life. If you don't hear anything else this morning, walk out of here understanding that faith in God, persevering faith in God, is the key to living the Christian life. It is faith that keeps you obeying God, trusting that it will be worth it. And fifth, someday God's glory will fill the earth. The uncertainties and complexities and perplexities and misunderstandings will all find their solution in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who will have an eternal, consummated kingdom. Now, Habakkuk began this dialogue by complaining and questioning God. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, he's silent before the Lord who is in his temple. And I think that is a reminder to us this morning that in the midst of our complaints and our questionings of God, the best thing to do is to go to a house of worship and to sit silently, and to listen to the Word of God. To get away from the clamor and the noise of the world. To sit and to hear God's voice. To be reminded that He is in His holy temple. He has not left. He hasn't left your side. He hasn't left heaven. He is ruling and He is reigning. And that once we sit in silence, there's only one other thing to do. And that's what Habakkuk does in chapter 3. 
It's to respond in prayer and praise to this holy God. The righteous shall live by faith. Do you have faith that God is bigger than your sin, bigger than your circumstances, bigger than the cataclysmic world events? The righteous shall live by faith. He is a sovereign God. And He is in the midst of of the storm that you are facing right now to provide comfort and to confirm your faith? Do you trust that He is there?